Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Health Upgrade Podcast. This is Dr. Habib, and I am joined once again by my co-host, JP Errico. I'm excited to dig in today into central nervous system disorders, and that's what we're going to really focus our attention on is understanding the pathophysiology, understanding how these conditions kind of start off. We're going to do a bit of an overview of central nervous system function, dig into negative processes that can lead to negative conditions, chronic health conditions, and central nervous system disorders. And that's what today's discussion is going to be on. We'll be reviewing some really awesome literature on this as well. And once we finish this discussion, our next episodes uh, in a little bit will follow on particular, very specific diagnoses within this realm of central nervous system disorders. All right. So that's what our discussion is going to revolve around today. I'm excited to chat with you, JP. Oh, it's good to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. All right. So on our last episode, uh, for those who haven't listened, we kind of did a basic overview of the vagus nerve, the parasympathetic autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic and sympathetic components, and understanding kind of the, the function of those particular sections of the autonomic nervous system. And today we want to dig into a particular area that's really important to the entire discussion of cognition, of how things are functioning within our brain that we know, the brain proper, the, the first brain the one within our head and the entire central nervous system. And so today we're going to dig into conditions ranging from migraines to insomnia, depression, strokes, seizures, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, etc. And what they have in common, as well as what we've found in the research that is associated to the autonomic nervous system, vagus nerve and, and whatnot within there. So that's where we're going to get going, and that's where we're going to dig into today. Wonderful. So let's start off talking a little bit about the central nervous system, just generally a basic, basic overview of the central nervous system. Sure. And um, I have a, a unique perspective on this, I think. Um, yes. After all the research that I've done in immunology as well as in neuroscience, I've come to recognize that those two fields are really mirror images of one another, or, or I shouldn't even say that, there's two sides of the same coin. I like to think of the immune system as having not the, the standard two branches that most immunologists would immediately recognize, that being the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system, but really three branches. One is the innate, one is the adaptive, but then the proactive immune system. Mm-hmm. And, and let me explain what I mean by that. The innate immune system is the immune system that we all have, all animals have, frankly, even some features of our innate immune system exist in plants. I mean, it's the ancient immune system that recognizes damage, it recognizes certain molecular patterns of pathogens, and it recruits very, very blunt instrument um, attacks that protect the organism. We are blessed with also an adaptive immune system, which evolved after the innate immune system. And that adaptive immune system learns. That's what vaccinations are about. That's why we don't get chicken pox twice. That's why 
if you're if you're fortunate enough to survive COVID, you're likely to have some lasting immunity to it. That's what we're talking about. The adaptive immune system doesn't kick in right away when you're exposed to something new. That's your innate immune system, but it learns all of the very specific patterns associated with that new experience. And then it prepares you so that the next time you you get exposed to chickenpox, for example, it's not that you don't have chickenpox inside you. It's just you don't get sick from it because your body's ready. Third hence arm. The, hence the adaptive name. Exactly. Exactly. You're, you're adapting to it. The, the third branch of the immune system I like to think of is the central nervous system. It's your proactive immune system. And I can even further subdivide it into sort of the basic proactive and then the sort of more higher level uh, proactive. But basically the idea is that we want to not only uh, be prepared, we want to avoid injury. We want to avoid things that are dangerous. And so we've evolved a nervous system that helps us to avoid injuries. And as I said, that's sort of the basic level of this proactive immune system. The higher level is to avoid stress. Um, We have a natural desire to uh, get to a position where we're comfortable and we can relax and we can be safe. And so we do things cognitively that try to get us to that place. We're driven to it. And that's all part of protecting ourselves to allow us to live a longer, healthier, more productive life. Um, So within that perspective, I realize that there's probably a lot of neuroscientists out there and neurologists who are saying, wow, you just completely took the brain and turned it into an immune organ. And to a certain extent, I am. And the reason for that is because the central nervous system is comprised not only of neurons, obviously neurons are really important. They're the ones that carry the electric signals and and, and give rise to thoughts and, and other things. But there are other cells inside our skulls. I mean, we're all we're all very proud of the fact that we have about 86 billion neurons, but there's at least that many, if not many more, other types of cells up inside our brain. And those cells are, in many cases, of immune origin. In fact, when we get to discussing sort of how the brain came to be in each one of us, there's a role for the immune system that's pretty profound. So it's not that crazy to say that our brains are actually created by our immune systems. So that's just a hint as to what's coming. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really love this idea of understanding that the immune system is not simply there as a protective mechanism against what's happening from an external environment, but rather also to prune and hedge and, and provide guidance to development for the internal system. And that's where the overlap is really occurring in the central nervous system in that idea of our brains, our, our neurons are built to learn. And if we are constantly learning everything all the time, then you can imagine that the hyperexcitability, the challenges that occur if, if we don't direct that learning in a particular direction are going to be vast and numerous. And so the job of the immune system, the proactive immune system, the cells that are present within the central nervous system is to focus that development, to focus that direction in which the growth does occur. And so I think that's something that we're going to dig into as we kind of go through the the development of and the production of these negative conditions. So I love that. Uh, and adding that third piece, it really does blend this idea that we don't have a nervous system that's separate from 
the immune system, that they're so intertwined with one another that the vascular system, the nervous system, the immune system are all really coming together within that brain cavity to create function and to allow for us to grow and move and, and actually be productive overall. If it wasn't for the, the interaction of these different systems, we would likely not have any of the, the growth directed in the way that we want it to, which is really, really important to understand. Yeah, it's a symphony that's going on inside us. And uh, just the same way you can't have the violins and the horns and the percussion all playing different songs, there got to be sort of a harmonious connection uh, that brings it all together. I, I think another thing that I didn't mention, but I think after what you said, it's, it's, really, it's really a good point, is that neurons don't just communicate with neurotransmitters. You know, we think of neurotransmitters like serotonin or acetylcholine or or uh, GABA or or glutamate as being sort of resigned or or reserved for use just by neurons, but that's not true. And in fact, most of our innate immune cells and some of our adaptive immune cells have on them receptors for neurotransmitters. And and the inverse is true. The converse is true. Our, our brain cells, our neurons, I shouldn't call them brain cells, it's just the neurons in our brain, have on them receptors for the chemical communication means of the immune system, which are typically cytokines. Yeah. So there are cytokine receptors like TNF-alpha receptors and IL-1 receptors, et cetera, on neurons. And they do very important things. I, I like to say to some of the colleagues that I've worked with over the last decade or so that we don't just have a computer sitting up in our brains because a computer is sort of has one state in which it exists. We have a wet wired system, mm -hmm. a wet wired system that functions very differently depending on what the chemicals are. The electrical signals uh, change the strengths. They change the strengths of what they need to be in order to activate other electric signals based on what the chemical environment is. And that chemical environment is controlled very much by cells that are not neurons. Um, in fact, more, even more so than the neurons control them. It's really interesting from an analogy standpoint to just kind of dig into this a little bit. Not, not that we need to too much, but the constant evolution of technology is kind of focused on becoming as human as possible. And the development of the computer was... Uh, a massive development in, in our ability to evolve, to communicate, to be around one another. The internet came soon after. Now we're developing artificial intelligence, but it's all modeled after human real intelligence and the ability to have this wet wired system that's constantly learning and growing and adapting to different inputs and creating uh, outputs that are going to allow for survival and thriving within those environments. So it's it's just a real eye-opener to think about, like, we, we think the computer is really smart, but in reality, it's, it's modeled after us. And so what are we trying to do? We're trying to take what we know to be the most adaptive, uh, effective system known to man, which is man itself, and try to create our own version of it really interestingly. Uh, you know, obviously, there's a, a an interest in neuroscience leads to an interest in artificial intelligence and neural network structures. And I, I do not in any way, shape or form protest to be an expert in it, but I, I have followed it, you know, from, from not too far away. And what I found is that um, one thing of interest is that when the artificial intelligence specialists came up with 
natural language processing neural networks that were sort of specifically tuned to learning to speak well, um, the structure that they engineered ended up being found to be almost exactly the structure that naturally occurs in the central nervous system that is in our language processing centers in our own brains. So it's where nature, nature didn't follow engineering, but the engineers sort of came up with, I guess, maybe a few hundred thousand years or a million years after nature did it. But it's just interesting how form follows, you know, follows function, but function also follows the form in this case. Absolutely. So let's, let's kind of start digging into the processes that uh, create challenges within the uh, central nervous system. So we want to dig into, I think, the idea of inflammation within the brain, the expression of these inflammatory cytokines. You mentioned earlier that not only do the immune system cells, the microglia, the astrocytes, et cetera, have these uh, receptors for cytokines, but they also, these uh, receptors are also found on the neurons as well. And uh, how the presence of these inflammatory cytokines actually lead to changes in the expression of neurotransmitters in neurons, as well as uh, other receptors on these neurons as well. Sure. Um, in the central nervous system, inflammation is, is quite damaging. There are instances in which it's necessary. It's a necessary evil. There are even instances, and we'll get into a discussion about this when we talk about the development of the brain again, where cytokines are actually part of the neurodevelopmental process. So you need some inflammatory cytokines to trigger very important processes that help to maintain health and actually help growth. Yes. Uh, but in general, especially in adults, the presence of inflammatory cytokines typically triggers microglial cells to change their conformation and change what their focus is it used to be, and, I, and by used to be, I mean, even within the last five years, things have changed pretty dramatically. Uh, it used to be thought that microglial cells were the resident, sort of resident macrophages, resident immune protector cells of the central nervous system, and that their job was to wait, to sort of surveil the situation, and when something damaged or something pathogenic uh, showed up, they would uh, spring into action and fight and do all the work that needed to be done to uh, clear the brain of, of the problem. It turns out that that's actually really, a I won't say an afterthought, but it's a lesser important uh, job for the microglial cells, that microglial cells are far more involved in maintaining homeostasis in the central nervous system, maintaining the proper levels of receptors, um, both neurotransmitter and cytokine receptors, and pruning and, and trimming uh, the system in, in much the same way a, a landscaper would trim the bushes. You can't just let the bushes continue to grow or else they're gonna look wild and untamed. You need to have it uh, to, to function properly and to be able to walk through your garden. You have to have the landscaper out there trimming things. And, and that's what microglial cells do. When they don't do that because of inflammation, they're giving up on doing tasks that are very, very important. And as a result, there are consequences. As I said, uh, you know, it's, it's good, but it's also, it has consequences that we, we don't necessarily want to have. And when we experience them, we consider them, you know, illnesses or diseases. Where would these inflammatory triggers particularly come from? Because we know that the central nervous system is by and large protected physically through the blood-brain barrier. 
And so what would need to occur? Where would more of these common sources of inflammation be that then either come through the blood-brain barrier or activate these uh, inflammatory triggers and these inflammatory cytokines within the central nervous system? So there's multiple pathways. I mean, we think of the blood-brain barrier when we say it, we think of it as this high wall that sort of surrounds the brain and nothing can get in. Um, That's not true. In fact, um, the blood-brain barrier uh, changes, even itself, the blood-brain barrier changes its integrity, if you will, depending on what's going on. When you're sick um, and there's inflammation, the blood-brain barrier itself is in part controlled by another class of cells in in the central nervous system, called astrocytes. And the astrocytes are also a form of glial cell. And um, they have protuberances called, you know, philopodia in the feet that sort of wrap around the microvasculature. So they, they wrap around it like a, almost like a bandage or a, or a sheath, and they prevent anything from getting through from the blood, uh, through the, the wall of the artery or vein and getting into the, the tissue of the brain. But that can be controlled by the by the astrocytes. They can change how well they are protecting the the brain from anything coming out. But that's just one way. There's uh, recently, even within the last five years, there's been a discovery that uh, the the lymphatic system has a pathway directly into the brain. Of course, the lymphatic system is part of the sort of the vasculature, if you will, of the immune system. And so the immune system has a pathway into the central nervous system that communicates with cerebral spinal fluid and allows the immune system sort of unregulated, I won't say unregulated because it's of course regulated, but, but sort of you know a clear path into the central nervous system. There's also a group of organs or they're called circumventricular organs, which are part of the, of the brain, but they actually sit outside the blood brain barrier. And so they're sort of in touch with what's going on in the blood and through connections within the brain, they can bring that information, maybe not directly chemically, but electrically, they can bring that information back up into the rest of the brain and inform the brain that there's inflammation peripherally in the rest of the body. There's also ways through peripheral nerves, like the vagus nerve, to bring neurotransmitters and other information back up into the central nervous system that, again, informs the brain that there is inflammation, and the neurons themselves can then trigger activity uh, in, in the brain that's, that's inflammatory. And as a final point, our sensory inputs, I mean, vision, hearing, taste, smell, et cetera, can simply through interactions with, with nerves, peripheral nerves, bring information into the brain that is either emotionally leads to inflammation or chemically leads to inflammation. So certain smells, for example, can trigger migraine headaches. Things that we see can cause our hearts to race and, and cause us stress, and that can lead to uh, inflammation. So there are many pathways by which the periphery of our bodies internally and externally can bring infl- inflammatory triggers into the brain and start the cascade of inflammation. And that makes a lot of sense because you can't truly have a wall without windows and doors and spaces through which everything can get through, right? It's not like our indoor environment is completely cut off from that external environment or or an outdoor environment in our house, for example. We've all got windows and doors and and whatnot within our, on the walls of our homes. And so blood-brain barrier does a good job of 
maintaining that homeostatic balance between those areas, but there are always going to be routes through which things can come through when there is imbalance occurring externally from the system and uh, thus can enter directly. I like, so, I like your analogy of the house. I mean, yes, a house has to protect you from the outside and, and create a barrier for people outside trying to get in, et cetera. But you have plumbing, you have your electricity, you have, you have you know, your air conditioning system. There's lots of different designed in pathways by which things from the outside have to get in. And frankly, things from the inside need to get out. Um, there's lots of metabolic processes that are taking place up in the brain. I think the brain uses you know, something like a quarter to half of all of the energy that your body intakes through digestion, et cetera. And as a result, there's going to be waste material and that waste material has to come out and there has to be pathways for shuttling that through uh, into the vasculature, into your kidneys and, and whatnot to get out of your system. So um, there has to be communication. Yeah, exactly. And, and, it goes down to developmentally as well that we develop our blood brain barrier actually develops from somites that are the same somites that develop the actual gut blood barrier and how our digestive system is so directly linked to our blood and our blood brain barrier. Uh, it, it's such a, an important developmental process because yes, we have a barrier in our intestinal lining, not allowing everything, bacteria, parasites, et cetera, to get in or to send their toxins in. But we need to have some passageway or, or entrance for the nutrients, for the protein and the amino acids and the fats and the carbs to get in, as well as the vitamins and minerals. And so we have to think about that when we're talking about how inflammation can get into the brain or how things that we want to generally or ideally keep outside of a certain environment, how they may be able to actually enter that environment accordingly. Yeah, and we know, and we know that peripheral triggers of inflammation, sort of bringing this back to the discussion of of, of central nervous system pathologies, um, we know that from animal work that triggering inflammation peripherally will trigger inflammation centrally. Yes. How that we've discussed the various different ways that that pathway can come uh, and bring that information and then lead to those changes in the central nervous system, but. It's not simply that there's just simply inflammation there. It does things. It lowers the barriers for, for your or the thresholds for you experiencing pain. It lowers the thresholds, pain like migraines. Um, it lowers the thresholds for you to have a seizure if you're, if you're an epileptic. It lowers the, the thresholds for your cognitive capabilities to be impaired. It lowers your mood. Frankly, it affects your mood and mental health. All of those things are functions of how inflammation affects the microenvironment, the macroenvironment, and frankly, really helps us understand how this dichotomy of the brain and body being separate entities really is, is sort of passe and old at this point. We have to sort of look beyond that and say, no, it's... It's atoms and molecules down here, but it's atoms and molecules up here. And some of them from down here go up here and the ones from up here go down there. So it, it works both ways. Absolutely. Something that we're going to get into a little bit is how those immune system cells that are within the central nervous system, uh, those are the microglia, the astrocytes, et cetera, that they are activated or ensure beyond the control of, of uh, the pruning of the neurons within the nervous system, how we can activate those cells effectively 
to manage inflammation when the inflammation levels do go high chronically, unexpectedly, and in a, in a, in a way that might actually create damage or, or lead to these diagnoses. And one of those tools is engaging the parasympathetic nervous system and that cholinergic anti-inflammatory system. So we're going to dig into that in a little bit, and that will then create positive shifts. Uh, you just sent me a paper today about this, in fact, that we're seeing a difference between the engagement of uh, the parasympathetic nervous system when somebody's dealing with depression or mood-based disorders to actually create an improvement in cognitive function when we are stimulating the vagus nerve rather than just simply a mood-based change that would occur with something like an SSRI or SNRI. So this really does go to show how important that the parasympathetic cholinergic anti-inflammatory system is in the control of not only periphery, but also centrally within the brain and, and nervous system. Well, I think that's a great entree to discussing depression. Let's, let's spend just a second or two talking about, you know, what treatment resistant depression looks like. I mean, we all, we've all heard of drugs that are like SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and so, uh, serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. Yeah. Those are drugs that are designed to, to modulate neurotransmitters. And it's been discovered that neurotransmitters like serotonin and norepinephrine are associated with depression, or the lack of enough of those neurotransmitters seems to lead to a depressed mood and depression and major depressive disorder. What's going on in many of those patients is also an inflammatory environment. And, and so let's talk for a second about how does inflammation affect neurotransmitter uh, production or the presence of the proper neurotransmitters? And, and uh, we'll use serotonin as an example. I think we've all heard of serotonin. We understand the importance of it. Serotonin uh, is a chemical that is synthesized from tryptophan. Um, so tryptophan is, is the original amino acid that is then modified into serotonin. And we all, in fact, it's called, chemically, it's called 5-hydroxytryptophan. The chemical synthetic pathway that leads from tryptophan to serotonin can be modified, and it can be diverted. Um, and it can be diverted by uh, an enzyme called indolamine-2,3-deoxygenase. Promise there's no quiz on this, but um, in the presence of uh, indolamine 2,3-deoxygenase, tryptophan is, uh, instead of ultimately producing serotonin, it produces another chemical called canernine. And canernine is found in the cerebral spinal fluid in higher concentrations in patients with major depressive disorder on average than, uh, than, the, than a, a normal person, a person with normal mood. And so you say, well, how does that occur? How does that happen? It turns out that uh, TNF-alpha, which is one of the primary inflammatory cytokines, as well as IL-1 beta, which is another massive uh, cytokine of, of inflammation, they have the ability to upregulate that indolamine 2,3-deoxygenase and divert the production of serotonin. So they're literally in the presence of of these inflammatory cytokines, you have less serotonin. So it's what, one of the reasons why depression is sometimes referred to as sickness behavior, because in the presence of sickness, you have inflammation, and in the presence of inflammation, you have less serotonin. And so that's why you feel down when you're ill. Now, the problem is what happens if that inflammation is chronically present? Well, then you have a chronic sickness behavior, you have a chronic low mood, you have a chronic depression. Um, another thing that uh, this, the presence of these inflammatory cytokines will do is actually disrupt the transport molecules. So basically on the surface 
of your astrocytes and on your on your neurons, you have transporters that will, after the release of that neurotransmitter in the synapse, you want to take that back up, the reuptake mechanism. And that reuptake mechanism, which is which is basically these transport molecules, TNF-alpha and IL-1 and other inflammatory cytokines makes your neurons and makes your astrocytes produce more of them. And so you have a more efficient reuptake mechanism. So think about it. We have drugs that are called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors that they're designed to block the reuptake mechanism. Mm -hmm. What we have in our inflammatory cytokines like TNF-alpha and IL-1 are selective serotonin reuptake enhancers. They're doing exactly the opposite. So you can understand now why it is that inflammation in the central nervous system leads to sickness behavior. And it's not just mood that it affects, it affects many other aspects of the central nervous system. It, it leads to a heightened level of excitability and you can actually get excitotoxicity. Um, it leads to excitability that leads to cortical spreading depressions, which is a prodromal symptom or a, an early phase of migraine. So migraineurs who are watching this may, may have experienced visual disturbances or other things that, that give them a sense that they're going to have a migraine. That is a hyperexcitation event that leads to toxicity. Yeah. Um, and so in any event, there's, there's many ways in which inflammation can affect the, the central nervous system and can lead to disorders. A really important piece of this puzzle to understand as well is that 94% of our serotonin is produced in our gut and is present primarily within our gut. And this just goes to show the importance of that gut brain axis, that gut brain connection as well, that when it comes to depression and mood disorders and major depressive disorder, especially when serotonin is heavily involved because the inflammatory cytokines are high, leading to the enhancement of the reuptake of serotonin, what that means is that the, the imbalance is likely happening within the gut, which is triggering that inflammatory reaction to begin. And so if you really honestly think about it, uh, when we are treating depression simply with a neurotransmitter reuptake inhibitor, like an SSRI, for example, what we're doing is we're actually affecting the neurons within the gut primarily, because that's where the majority of the serotonin is located. And so would it not also then, from a functional medicine standpoint, look to fig figure out why the inflammation is present potentially from the gut to begin with? So just a little side note from my functional medicine side, as well to to look at the gut to look at the source of that inflammation as potentially being some sort of microbiome dysbiosis some sort of parasitic infection i found uh, multiple of these within patients of mine as well uh, using functional lab testing that help us to identify why these problems are happening in a lot of people and one of the wonderful things that you mentioned earlier was the kynurenin when the name of the enzyme completely passed by me so i'm glad you're not quizzing me on it uh, but the presence of the, the inflammatory enzyme that downregulates the production of serotonin in particular, the idea here is that it produces kynurenin or kynurenate is actually something that we can now test for on urinary organic acid testing. It's one of the best ways to dig a little bit deeper and see what's going on there. And there are particular uh, nutrients that are required for the support of that particular enzyme to, to shut it down or to decrease its function and to upregulate the actual production of serotonin. 
effectively and naturally, ideally, within your own body where the SSRI would ideally not be required. Yeah, in fact, it's, it's, it's great that you mentioned um, the, the metabolite tests that you can do for it. You know, neurotransmitters are produced throughout your body, and I, you're absolutely right, serotonin is produced prodigiously in the gut. It's actually produced by the microorganisms in your gut. Um, it's, it's critically important that the presence of neurotransmitters in correct and appropriate quantities is something that's not simply required in the central nervous system. It's required everywhere. Yeah. And so the production of serotonin, for example, in your liver, you know, the metabolites of, of the, the biosynthetic pathway that you're measuring occur also in your liver. Um, the, the same indolamine 2,3-deoxygenase, I, I think it's called something different, but it's the same molecule, um, exists in the liver and is producing um, serotonin. And if inflammation is present systemically, you're going to get less of it produced and you're going to get more of the canurinine and you're going to see the metabolites of it in, in the urine and you'll be able to test for it. You know, your focus on the gut is not wrong <laughs> by any stretch. And um, I think on the last episode, you quoted Hippocrates, and it's never wrong to quote Hippocrates um, when he said all disease arises from the gut. You know, he had he had lots of wonderful things. Obviously, we're all aware of, of the do no harm Hippocratic Oath. Another saying that he had that I just I'm going to throw out there, we'll, we'll get to it and the importance of it later. But he said, it is often more important to know your patient that has the disease than the disease that your patient has. And I think that understanding the entirety of the being that you're dealing with is far more important than the specific problem that he or she is experiencing at that time. Um, because what's happening today oftentimes is the result of what happened yesterday. And if you know the person, you'll know what happened yesterday. If you only know the disease, you only know what happened today. For all my practitioners out there that are listening, it, it really just goes to show that are you, are you treating the patient or are you treating the condition or the diagnosis, right? We, we want to make sure that we are supporting the person because the person is the one that's suffering from said condition, diagnosis, whatever it is. And in reality, if we don't know our patient well enough, but we are the best diagnostician in the world, are we really doing a service to our patient by not knowing what's going on there? I don't want to dig into that too much and get into the philosophy of healthcare, but in reality, we should be treating the patient and not the condition, not the disease or the diagnosis. For sure. So let's dive into some of the other conditions that are central nervous system disorders and talk about how the immune system plays a role. And then, and then that'll be a good segue into discussing how the autonomic nervous system can, can modulate the inflammation in the central nervous system, because that's really a big part of what it is that the goal of this podcast is. So let's talk about some of the degenerative disorders that occur later in life. An example being Alzheimer's disease. Obviously, it's a tremendous burden on society. Um, the number of people who are experiencing it is going up uh, as we age more and also as a result of some of the things that are going on in Western society that are leading to more inflammation being present. So think about the, the central nervous system. At least this is the way I think of it. The central nervous system has ongoing processes during its neurodevelopment all the way through old age. And it builds up certain proteins that it needs along the way. And if it produces a, a large quantity of them, it may not be able to dispose of it in the typical ways that it gets rid of proteins, especially if it's extracellular. If, if it's been put out into the extracellular environment, it may stay there for an extended period of time. And one of these proteins 
it's related to Alzheimer's is beta amyloid or amyloid beta, depending on where you are, you pronounce it, you say it, say it differently. But this protein is critically important in neurodevelopment, but it also has the ability to aggregate. So when it sees another molecule of beta amyloid, it'll stick to it. And they stick together and they begin to build up these, these little nuggets, if you will, of protein. And along the way, the structure of that protein sort of changes as it binds to one another. And in the process of changing its structure, its external structure, on the surface, it starts to show or have conformations that look like it could be a bacteria. Mm -hmm. It has something called a beta sheet. A beta sheets uh, start to appear on the surface. And beta sheets look like they could be bacteria to the immune system. Now, if you have microglial cells that are prone to become inflammatory, they may see these aggregates as something that's damaging or, or dangerous or pathogenic, and in which case they'll move into a more uh, aggressive state, that more pro-inflammatory state, and they'll try to degrade and, and, and chew up these aggregates. And that's not necessarily a bad thing if it's contained. But if as a result of that process, it gets sort of out of control and out of hand because those microglial cells started in a hypervigilant, sort of prone to be angry state, then they can cause damage. And, they can, and the damage can be neurotoxic, it can be cytotoxic, it can end up sort of degrading and degenerating the brain. And we've seen that, and it's part of the degenerative process that goes with Alzheimer's. So the question is, why would these microglial cells be in that state? One way is, is if there's been trauma. And so one of the things that has evolved over the last couple of decades is an understanding that concussions and other traumatic brain injury can lead in the long run to you know, CTE, that, that sort of long-term damage to the brain that is the result of, of not just one, but oftentimes repeated concussions. And so what we see is that the microglial cells they have to get activated because there's been damage, but then they stay in this aggravated, hypervigilant state for an extended period of time. And in case of a concussion, it can be six months or a year before those microglial cells settle back down all the way to their baseline neurotrophic state. And so that's why that second concussion is so much more damaging than the first. Um, that second concussion can, or, or any trauma that leads to sort of sustained or even upregulating that inflammatory state when they were already hypervigilant can be very damaging. So the question is, how can we, how can we calm those, those microglial cells down, even in the elderly? How can, we, how can we teach those microglial cells to stay in that quiescent and neurotrophic and supportive environment or, or state in which they're surveilling the environment, but not because they're looking to pick a fight, but because they're doing their job of, of creating new pathways and pruning pathways that shouldn't be there. So we can, we can literally in the hippocampus have new memories form and learn. That's one of the reasons why in, in Alzheimer's, you have this attack on memory. You, you see these people who can remember what happened in 1940 very clearly, clear as day, but they can't remember where they left the keys or, or even who their children are. So that's all a function of inflammation and what microglial cells are doing. So how do we calm it down? And it turns out that the autonomic nervous system has a way of calming down inflammation, both peripherally and centrally. And 
to give you a sense as to the importance of this mechanism, and I, I think it's one of the most important mechanisms we have in our body, I want to step back and talk for just a moment about the power of the immune system. We are all sitting on something akin to a nuclear bomb. I mean, we could be killed by our immune systems inside 30 seconds. And you, some people may, may, may scoff at that, say that's crazy. But if you've ever seen somebody have a severe anaphylactic reaction, they can stop breathing in seconds. What used to happen before the more upgraded and more modern versions of contrast dyes that are used in imaging, you know, one in 10,000 people would have contrast dye injected directly into them for an imaging purposes, but that person was allergic to it. And you'd see 30 seconds later, the person's dead on the ground from simply an injection of something that they're highly allergic to. So that's all mediated by an immune system that's gone awry. So we have inside us the ability to have that sort of negative reaction. Well, a healthy person has the ability to control that. And how do we control it? I mean, we're not doing it mentally. We're not, we're not thinking about it, cognitively doing it. But the body has multiple systems and multiple ways of stopping inflammation. One of them is the HPA axis. Um, your, your adrenal glands release glucocorticoids, and they're like our own version of steroids. It's an anti-inflammatory pathway. Another method is intracellularly, inside the cells themselves, there are proteins that are formed that are called suppressors of cytokine signaling or SOX proteins. We'll talk about that in, in, in great detail when we talk about type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance, glucose intolerance, et cetera, and meta-inflammation. But for our purposes right now, we need something faster. If you're going to deal with an anaphylactic reaction, you need something that can manage that process almost instantly. And so what we have is a neurologic or a nervous system pathway of controlling inflammation. And there are actually two ways. One is using uh, norepinephrine and the other is using acetylcholine. So the latter pathway is referred to as the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. And I think that's, I think you were alluding to that earlier. I think it's worth, worth diving into because the vagus nerve is uh, the parasympathetic pathway. It runs basically on acetylcholine and the sympathetic nervous system, sympathetic part of the autonomic nervous system runs on norepinephrine. And so the immune system can sort of be pushed by either arm of the autonomic nervous system. But let's talk briefly about the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. The vagus nerve as we talked about on the last episode, has about 80% of its fibers going up into the brainstem. Um, so it's basically serving as a sensory nerve, bringing information up into the brainstem. The vagus nerve passes through the, uh, the nucleus tractus solitarius and activates certain areas within the brainstem that are responsible for the release of acetylcholine or norepinephrine. One, the, the acetylcholine is released from the nucleus bacillus, the uh, norepinephrine is released from the locus ceruleus. And as an aside, the locus ceruleus is one of the earliest areas to be degenerated in moving towards Alzheimer's. As you go through mild cognitive impairment, even before mild cognitive impairment, even a decade earlier, what we see is that these patients have a degenerated locus ceruleus. And it's a tiny little area. So it goes to the importance of that area with respect to controlling inflammation. But we're going to talk right now about the acetylcholine 
and the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. We talked earlier about the fact that immune cells have on them neurotransmitter receptors. And one such receptor is called the alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. Again, no quiz on it. We'll just call it the alpha-7 receptor. The alpha-7 receptor, when acetylcholine is released, is activated. And the activation of, the, of this receptor leads to a pathway in the central nervous system that is inside the cell of the immune cell to reduce inflammation. It literally stops the entire inflammatory cascade that's going on inside the nucleus, creating new proteins, you know, transcribing uh, genes to be produced into proteins. It stops the entire pathway. It's a truly a, a very, very powerful uh, mechanism. And it is fortunately something that the body has evolved um, and, and it's, it's present in, in all mammals. It is a potent way to reduce inflammation in the central nervous system because the microglial cells have this alpha-7 receptor on them. And as a result of this burst of release of acetylcholine that comes from the nucleus bacillus, you see a downregulation in the activity of these microglial cells and they move back into that quiescent state that's neurosupportive, neurotrophic. It's helping to rebuild things. It's helping to prune things. It's doing what it's supposed to be doing as opposed to getting angry and going after a fight. It makes a lot of sense. And it, I, I want to step back a little bit. You mentioned earlier with the presence of the beta amyloid, how our microglia cells are responding to it and, and creating the breakdown of our central nervous system when they're in that hyperinflammatory environment or hyperinflammatory state. And just as a quick side note, yes, concussion, whiplash are, are certainly triggers of that inflammatory state within the central nervous system. They're going to be major sources of that. I also want to just mention quickly that other environmental sources of that inflammatory upregulation or just within that sliding scale of being completely anti-inflammatory to being completely hyper-inflammatory, somewhere along that pathway when we're sitting in that slightly more, slightly hyper-inflammatory state because our diet is misaligned because we have too much sugar or way too many carbohydrates in, in a state where we're insulin resistant, for example, we are then allowing the opportunity for those microglial cells to be in that slightly more hyper-inflammatory state. And when given the opportunity, if it's a trigger such as a, a whiplash concussion, motor vehicle accident type, type of reaction, then those microglial cells will start to notice that beta amyloid as more of an inflammatory or more of a, a threat to its existence and go and attack. And the collateral damage is going to happen in the locus ceruleus in that central nervous system, thus having this collateral damage type of issue that is actually leading to the diagnosis of Alzheimer's. So when we go back and we, we step back steps forward or many, many steps earlier in the process, we need to note that it's that inflammatory environment that allows for the process to occur many years prior to the development of the disease itself. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, and I didn't mean to suggest that the only thing that could cause uh, that inflammatory or hypervigilant state could be um, trauma because- Oh, no, no. Point out, there's many different ways. You can do it with toxins. You can do it, frankly, just with stress. Yeah. You can do it with lack of sleep. You know, one of the one of the things that I was hoping to get to, and this may be uh, the right time to talk about it, is the fact that once you sort of get into this mode where there's inflammation, there's what I sort of 
refer to as a feed forward loop that's sort of re self-reinforcing all of this you know, bad things that are happening. You have the inflammation. We talked earlier about how inflammation can disrupt neurotransmitter production. We talked about serotonin and the fact that TNF-alpha is like the selective serotonin reuptake enhancer and it's blocking the production of serotonin. It does that same thing to a number of other inhibitory neurotransmitters. So that, that inflammation is designed to disrupt and push the neurotransmitter production and the receptors in favor of excitability. And so then you, you, you're living in a hyper-excitable environment. So you started with inflammation, led to neurotransmitter expression being distorted. You now have a hyper-excitation state and the triggers for causing actual hyper-excitation phenomenon, things like seizures or cortical spreading depressions or other phenomena like that, what you end up with is more inflammation being produced because hyperexcitation itself leads to inflammation. Because to a certain extent, inflammation in some ways is designed to help protect against the damage. Well, the damage is occurring as a result of hyperexcitation. So it's this feed forward loop. One of the ways that we can naturally break that cycle, we experience it. People who have migraines, you know, they go to bed, they go to sleep. You know, what do we do when we're depressed? We're, we sleep. What do we do when we have a concussion? We sleep. The goal is actually to drive the brain into a different state, not an alert awake state, but into a state of sleep where there's lots of, of down regulation of excitation, cleaning out of that inflammation, cleaning out of that. But, but again, our lives in Western culture are one of the things we give up for all the benefits and all the other things that we get, we're giving up sleep. We're, in, in, we're taking in not enough of the right foods. We're taking in not, uh, not enough of the right relaxation time. We're not doing the things, exercise, et cetera, that are designed to reduce that inflammation, stop that neurotransmitter imbalance, stop that hyperexcitation that's continuing, and the excitotoxicity. What happens in Alzheimer's disease when you're 70 or 80 years old is the product of a lifetime's worth. Of, I mean, yes, there's genetic things that happen and, and there's certainly other things that are out of our control, but there's a lifetime of, I don't want to call it abuse, but I, I can't think of a better word, a lifetime of maybe bad decision-making, um, other things of, of, of running our system too hard that leads to that existence. And, you know, the parallel that I like to make because a lot of researchers and a lot of people will point at beta amyloid and say, well, beta amyloid causes Alzheimer's. That is not true. I want to state that very clearly that beta amyloid aggregates, even the aggregates, the little nuggets of these, of these proteins that have, you know, joined together, they exist in 90 year old people who are still on the lecture circuit, still writing novels, still, you know, doing great math. I mean, these people have just as much beta amyloid in their systems as somebody who has florid Alzheimer's disease. Yes, the presence of it is a risk factor, but it's only a risk factor. It is not the cause of the problem. I, the parallel for me is heart disease and specifically clogging of your arteries and, and, and atherosclerosis. Mm -hmm. That uh, people blame cholesterol. Cholesterol is a critically important 
molecule. We need it. It's the precursor for many hormones. It's, it's critically important in the central nervous system. It's just something that's, it should be ubiquitous. The issue is not the presence of cholesterol. It is a cofactor. It is a thing that can be, it can be inflammatory. If your immune system is prone to it, and if it's primed for it, then cholesterol will be sort of a target and, and it will be part of that process. But it's not in and of itself a problem. Yes. So we sort of get, you know, as, as uh, I can't remember the, the news reporter who said it, but, you know, for every difficult problem, there is a simple solution that's wrong. So that's sort of where I, I view the idea of going after cholesterol, going after amyloid beta. It's involved, but it's not the cause. Exactly. Yeah, completely agree. And I couldn't have said it better. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about what's happening and the ways that you can um, control your autonomic nervous system to actually drive a healthier existence and, and drive those microglial cells and the, and the other cells that are in the central nervous system that are dependent on them and partner with them, like astrocytes and neurons. How do we fix that, that environment using your autonomic nervous system? We talked about the fact that the vagus nerve is involved in causing the release of acetylcholine. That triggers the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. There's also the release of norepinephrine, and, and norepinephrine is important as well because when it binds to certain beta receptors, it has the ability to be both pro-inflammatory as well as anti-inflammatory. That's your sympathetic nerve chain. You and I have talked about the fact that being sympathetically activated is not bad in short bursts. In short bursts, it can actually be quite healthy. A little stress is a good thing. This but is a hermetic response, right? We've got these hermetic stresses, stressors, the exercise, the, the sauna time, getting into the ice bath, those little stressors that are very positive for your uh, overall inflammatory control. But yes. Exactly. And in fact, um, I think cupping and other things are, you know, s small locations of, of, you know, oxygen deprivation will lead to, you know, a, a lowering of systemic inflammation. You know, just on that point alone, I think there's a fabulous work that's being done in the area of kidney disease and looking at kidney transplants. And one of the things that they've discovered is that, and this is this part is fascinating to me. What you can do is prior to a, a kidney transplant, what they do is they take the individual and they cause a local, like almost like cupping, a, a local spot where they're they're blocking the blood supply from getting to the tissue just you know on your hand or your or your arm or something like that just having done that within 24 hours of the transplant has a remarkably positive effect on the reduction of damage to the kidney itself now you say to yourself that's fantastic so all you have to do no that's not the only thing you have to do but it does seem to have a really meaningful effect on the, the health of that kidney. What I haven't told you is you can do it either on the donor or the recipient. What? Yes, it's totally neat. It happens on either the donor or the recipient. So it's having an effect inside the kidney itself. And it has to do with controlling the autonomic nervous system. It's triggering this anti-inflammatory pathway by just giving a little bit of stress, you cause this sort of global 24, 48 hours of 
lower inflammation and lower immune responsiveness. It affects the threshold by which inflammation is elevated or or turned on or turned off. It's really interesting. Exactly. So probably have, has more to do with norepinephrine than, than the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. But let's talk about the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway, because that's, I think, something that people can control in a slightly more relaxed environment. Um, you know, deep breathing exercises. There's some old ways of doing it and some new ways of doing it. You know, deep breathing exercises goes back to sort of prana yoga, you know, prana breathing techniques from yoga. That's thousands of years old. Um, you can do chanting, Gregorian chants and things like that, humming, dancing, things like that, laughing. All these things are helpful in part because they're activating your parasympathetic, your vagus nerve. The work that was done by Kevin Tracy, he's a neurosurgeon, he runs a large research center. He discovered what's called the the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. And I want to give credit to him because he's a brilliant man and he's done wonderful work and really discovering this pathway is, has given us the opportunity to understand so much more about autonomic nervous system health. But what he did was he showed that stimulating the vagus nerve had the ability to reduce the expression of cytokines like TNF-alpha and IL-1, both in the periphery and in the central nervous system. And so we, what we've been talking about is the role that that has on microglial cells and on lowering the inflammatory state in the central nervous system and how that affects things like mood, how it affects things like migraines by reducing an epilepsy. In fact, vagus nerve stimulation has been approved for the treatment of migraines, for the treatment of depression, for the treatment of epilepsy, because sort of low-hanging fruit, we recognize that inflammation was involved with those different problems. And yet there's still hope that modulation of the autonomic nervous system may have an effect on cognitive difficulties like myocognitive impairment or Alzheimer's um, in other degenerative disorders like Parkinson's disease. There's work being done right now looking at Parkinson's disease uh, as a potential treatment uh, or VNS as a treatment for Parkinson's disease. So very exciting work being done out there. I personally think that the re- that the results of the work that Kevin Tracy did and the work that others are doing to sort of take that that original scientific work and translate it into the into the field to be used to treat patients is one of the great is one of the great discoveries of the last twenty years. Yeah, no question. Let's talk a little bit about essentially how vagus nerve stimulation works. I think that would be a really interesting step here, and and the effect that it can have on inflammatory function within the central nervous system, on the microglial cells that are activated when it comes to Alzheimer's, on the effect of, of migraine or depression. Let's talk a little bit about the actual uh, vagus nerve stimulation and the effect that it has there. So what I'll talk about right now is sort of initially the, the canonical view, the, the one that, that Dr. Tracy developed. Th- there are some people who think that there's some other parallel pathways and I'll touch on those as well because they involve norepinephrine and the sympathetics. But and and I think along the way it'll it'll be clear as to why they think this. But basically, what what Kevin Tracy and his team did, and this goes back more than twenty years at this point, what he did was he took animals. In this case, it was rats, and he injected them with a substance that he knew would trigger an immune response. In this case, it was something called lipopolysaccharide. 
LPS. It triggers a robust immune response. It's sort of like a mini version of septic shock. And what he found was that when he did that, not surprisingly, uh, levels of the inflammatory cytokines, TNF-alpha and IL-1, went up tremendously. Then what he did was he cut the vagus nerve. And what he found was that when he did that, in his model, hasn't always been reproducible this way, but what he showed was that the situation got even worse. For the same amount of LPS, he saw an even higher level of TNF-alpha being produced. Again, other people haven't seen that, but his, his thought at that point, at least as he's written it, is that that suggested to him that the vagus nerve was acting as a brake on the immune system. And by cutting the vagus nerve, it was like cutting the brake lines. All of a sudden, you had a much higher level of inflammation. Then what he did was he stimulated the vagus nerve either intact or in some cases, he even did it with the vagus nerve that he had cut. And what he found was that by stimulating the vagus nerve, he could dramatically reduce the level of TNF-alpha that was in the system. And so his thesis was that it was directly the release of acetylcholine from the vagus nerve that was causing the, the benefits. Mm. He, su he suspected that that was occurring in the spleen. And, and there's reasons behind that. It's actually sort of interesting historically. Um, there's a great paper from 1945, I think. It was in the Royal Proceedings of uh, the Royal College of, of Rheumatology or something. It was written by somebody named Bach. And what they had done was they had taken a woman, a young woman who was experiencing severe rheumatoid arthritis, and they did a splenectomy. They removed her spleen, and it produced remarkably positive results for her. It effectively arrested her, the progression of her disease. I mean, it was now, obviously, nobody's running out to have a splenectomy right now if they have severe rheumatoid arthritis. Please but, don't. <laughs> please don't. But, but the truth is, it had a very beneficial effect. And so I'm sure the progression of that thought line told him that it was likely that the benefits of stimulating the vagus nerve were the result of having an effect on the spleen. Mm -hmm. But then he sort of ran into a little bit of a difficulty with that simplistic model because the spleen is actually one of the only organs in the chest and abdomen that's not innervated by the vagus nerve directly, yeah. by the parasympathetic. So what he did was he, he started looking at the, at the way the connections get from the vagus nerve over to the spleen. And it turns out that it involves the splenic nerve. The splenic nerve is a sympathetic nerve. It is not a parasympathetic nerve. So it's part of the sympathetic nervous system that relies on norepinephrine, not on the vagus nerve that's part of the parasympathetic that releases acetylcholine. But what he showed was that by stimulating the vagus nerve, he could have an effect on the spleen. So it clearly had to be associated with this release of norepinephrine from the splenic nerve. But the splenic nerve connects back up to the brain through the sympathetics. So what his thesis was that you could either directly activate the splenic nerve, either by stimulating the vagus nerve and it was going down to that point, or it could go back up through the brain and back down the sympathetics. So sort of a, a reflex arc. Right. Either way, what happened was there was a release, and again, no quiz, but there's a release of norepinephrine into the spleen. And there's a group of T cells, part of your adaptive immune system, actually, that receive that norepinephrine and then release acetylcholine. So it's a way, these, these cells are called CHAT cells. They have the ability to release acetylcholine when norepinephrine hits them. So they're acting like sort of a, a if you think about it, it's sort of like a conversion factor. Yeah. It's converting a sympathetic release of norepinephrine into 
sort of locally, a parasympathetic release of acetylcholine. And what he showed was that it had the ability to shut down the activity that was going on in the spleen pretty profoundly. And that is activating particularly those alpha-7 receptors on the macrophages within the spleen, particularly. So down-regulating inflammation at the site where the vast majority of macrophages uh, are, are being trained or being supported within the, the spleen. Exactly. In fact, it's both monocytes that are, that are circulating. So monocytes are, are sort of macrophages in waiting. They're the ones that are circulating, and when there's a problem, they leave the, the vasculature, they enter into the tissue, and they become macrophages. At some point, I think during our discussions, I'd love to get into that conversion of M1 to M2 macrophages and how the vagus nerve is involved there, but I think that we'll save that for another day. Today, I, I'd love to continue on here with digging into the, the effects at those nerve endings and essentially when people are dealing with one of these chronic diagnoses, when they're dealing with Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, migraines, dementia, depression, one of our patients or somebody who's listening to this episode right now, we talked about a bunch of practical things, but I'd love to just consolidate them, bring them together and, and dig into kind of what are, what are some of the things that they can do right off the bat that can really help them. So one of the things that's, that's really important is to make certain that the vagus nerve is functioning properly and can function properly. And so hearkening back again to that, that great Greek guy, Hippocrates, who said that, you know, all disease arises from the gut, you know, what he, what, what we found is, and, and this is not universally believed, but there, there's pretty strong evidence at this point that is probably likely is that if your gut microbiome is not functioning properly then vagus nerve activation, whether it be by humming, deep breathing, or otherwise, is going to be impaired. Yes. So the very first thing you have to do before you really embark on anything modulating the autonomic nervous system is make certain that the autonomic nervous system is prepared to function properly, and that is by doing things to restore proper gut function. You can do that in a number of ways. One is clearly prebiotics and probiotics. Make certain that, the, that those trillions of different bacterial uh, entities that are existing in various different colonies all the way through your gastrointestinal tract are functioning properly and that they're the right ones. And you talked about the fact that if you have a bad diet and you're eating too many you know, fried foods and fast foods and things like that, you are feeding really the wrong bugs. You want to have the right ones in your gut. Um, the second thing you can do is directly add into your diet some of the things that those bacteria that are in your gut are supposed to be producing for you. One of the things is butyrate or, um, you know, the, the butyric acid. I mean, it's a, it's a short chain fatty acid that if you have it in your gut, it is, helps to make certain that the endothelial lining is, is sort of like the, as you said, it's, it's the blood brain barrier of your gut. So we'll call it the blood gut barrier. And that endothelial lining is healthy. If you've done that, then parasympathetic activation should be primed for success. Absolutely. At that point, things like getting the right amount of sleep, doing exercise, eating the right foods, trying to take time to relax. I realized in, in a stressful environment that we all live in and with the economy the way it is and, and with you know, COVID and all the other you know, risks that are out there in our lives, it's difficult to do it. But really, it's very important to figure out how to do that. There are some you know, ways that we talked about 
um, electrical stimulation of the vagus nerve. That's one way. There's there's auricular ways of doing that. There's non-invasive ways. There's implantable ways. I'm not suggesting that everybody go out and get an implant put into their bodies for it. I realize there's some biohackers out there who are really dedicated and they might do it. But you know, there's other ways to to achieve the same benefit. You know, take a yoga class that will have benefits far beyond just you know losing weight or becoming flexible. Yes. It will have an effect on you you know, far greater than just, you know, the, the physical, it will have an effect mentally, it will have an effect on your central nervous system. And, and the central nervous system is where we perceive our entire world. So we'll get into that a little bit more when we talk about somatoform disorders, but everything that we experience is experienced in our, in our central nervous system. So making certain that it's functioning properly is critical. Absolutely. I think we can end with a little bit of a story that you, uh, you had mentioned to me a little while ago with regards to just how you and your wife, one of you can get sick and one of you doesn't and, and kind of the, the whole process behind that. I'd love to, to dig in there. Sure, and we'll, and we'll dig into it in more depth when we talk about the somatoform disorders, et cetera. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I've been married very happily now for coming up on 17 years, got four wonderful kids. And uh, my wife and I have, you know, along the way, gotten colds, been sick, had the flu, she had COVID, I had COVID, et cetera. And at no point did we isolate ourselves and put ourselves in separate rooms and, and, you know, sort of eat food slipped under the door, that sort of thing. And, you know, I say to myself, when I think about it, I said, no, we've been married for 17 years. And during that time, she's been sick and I haven't, I've been sick and she haven't, but yet we sleep in the same bed. We're two feet apart from one another for seven hours, eight hours a day. There's no way that we're not sharing the same pathogens. Yeah. Why is it that sometimes she gets sick and I don't, or the other, or the reverse? And what I've come to realize, and this is, this is after quite a lot of discussions with immunologists and neurologists and, and understanding neuroscience uh, better, is that inside our brains, we perceive the world. And the world is not just the external world. It's not just our visual field or what we hear, or what we taste or smell otherwise. It's how we internally feel. Mm -hmm. And there's specialized areas of our brain that deal with vision, the visual cortex, areas of the brain that deal with what we hear, the auditory cortex, et cetera. What we have in the brainstem areas that deal with pain and deal with discomfort and deal with our, you know, our body temperature, et cetera. And so what we have is a stream of information coming up into the brainstem, millisecond by millisecond, giving us input as to what's going on and how we should respond and how we should react. And that involves our metabolism. It involves our immune system. It involves really every sensory nerve that we have in our body. It's coming up into our brainstem. At the highest level, it's developing into a perception of, you know, do I have to go to the bathroom? Uh, does my leg hurt? You know, am I tired? Am I hungry? You know, what am I supposed to be doing today? Am I stressed? All of that information has to be processed. And, and for the most part, the information coming up from the immune system in there, because it's part of that mix, is generally viewed as, you know, by our brains as not requiring conscious response, not requiring a change in our behavior. And yet every once in a while, the, that information coming up through the immune system triggers us to have to respond consciously. It, it, it reaches the point at which the immune system says, we're not going to be able to handle this by ourselves. We need you to change your behavior. Mm -hmm. Now, it would be great if that was a message that we suddenly saw in our visual field, like a little blinking neon sign that said, this is the immune system talking, please go lie down. That doesn't happen. 
That doesn't happen. Wish it did, but it doesn't. So Mother Nature has decided to make us feel something so that we will respond in a way that makes us change our behavior. And so how does it do that? It gives us symptoms. And these are the flu-like symptoms that seem to, you know, whether it's a, you know, it's a gut infection or a respiratory infection or, you know, you know, frankly, anything, including lack of sleep will trigger us to experience a host of symptoms that are being run through the central nervous system, through our brain stems to give us a trigger to change our behavior. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about a headache. I'm talking about nausea. I'm talking about vertigo. I'm talking about achiness. I'm talking about fatigue. I'm talking about things like that, that fever even. Um, mood changes. You know, all of those things are ways in which Mother Nature has programmed into our brains a sick program. And when that sick program gets triggered, it makes us, through inflammation, inflammation is what's triggering it, makes us want to go lie down, want to not eat, gives us ability to sleep for 12 hours through the middle of the day, which you know most adults can't do unless they're not feeling well. And the good news is that for most of us, we respond to that, we have those experiences, we get over it quickly. But it also explains why people who are really physically fit, who are in great shape, why they don't feel that, they don't feel sick. That doesn't mean that they don't have the same bacteria. It doesn't mean that they don't have the same viral responses from their immune system. It just means that their vagus nerve and their central nervous system and their brain stems are responding without needing to trigger the, the sick response. Yeah. So that's, let's leave it there to just encourage people, go out and get physically fit, eat well, sleep well, prime your immune system and your autonomic nervous system to be able to respond when you do encounter pathogens, not to feel sick. Doesn't mean you don't have it. It just means your body is going to be able to handle it and your brain doesn't need to trigger that sick program. In, in a separate conversation that we're going to have, I think maybe in the next episode or two, we'll talk about what happens when that sick program doesn't turn off. Mm -hmm. Even though the reason for it's gone, it's still there. Great segue for our next episode. I think it's a perfect place to, to leave off for now. Like, like JP has mentioned here, the, the recommendation is get healthy. Get to a point where your body can adapt to those pathogens, to those inflammatory triggers, those environmental challenges more effectively and, and essentially increase your resilience. That's really what the vagus nerve activation really does is, is allows for your resilience to be higher so you can adapt and respond to those challenges more readily, more easily, and come out of it without those chronic diagnoses that so many people are being diagnosed with. So wonderful place to leave off. Let's uh, save all of our amazing stories and research for the next episode. And uh, thank you so much for listening to the Health Upgrade podcast. We'll see you soon. Thank you.